0: So welcome Dan Metashevsky to the latest episode of Depth and Spread, the DIDX podcast, uh, where we try to deliver actionable trading insights to our listeners with a minimum of LARPing. Um, today we're going to kind of be breaking down CMS's process. We titled the episode Anatomy of a Trade. So we're going to try and deliver on that promise. Okay. Yeah. Before we get into any more detail, let me just give this little disclaimer. The information in this podcast is not financial legal tax or investment advice, and please check out our full terms conditions in the description for this podcast why don't we just start with an introduction from you like who are you what's your background how did cms get started that kind of good stuff yeah God. so um i've been doing this for a while now i
1: um i kind of like jumped full time into crypto it was really just bitcoin um at the back of 2012 early 2013 um, started doing some like very rudimentary sort of what you would, I guess, like call market making, but not really just like a lot of electronic trading between a couple of the venues that existed before being one of them, Mount Cox being another one, um, really just as like a way to like trade a volatile asset. Um, didn't really care too much about like Bitcoin in particular, but just like, Hey, this thing like moves around a lot and it's super dislocated, um, amongst venues. And then ultimately got to know um, Jesse at Kraken really well um, because we were doing or I was doing so much of the volume at Kraken when it first got started. Ended up going to work there for about six months and then uh, hopped over pretty quick to work for Circle, which was in Boston um, and worked there for about five years and then was sort of running market operations for them which was, was a couple of different things over time, but it became like a full fledged sort of like risk-taking desk in the back, sort of two or three years of it, um, and a lot of OTC liquidity providing. And then teamed up with a guy named Bobby Cho, who was working at Cumberland DRW's trading arm for crypto, and a guy named Julian Sagan, who had built a lot of the infrastructure for us at Circle um, on the trading side to start CMS. So CMS is just principal trading desk, um, like, we do a fair amount on the venture side, of it, our bread and butter is sort of like on the liquid sort of um, arm of things, um, but we don't, we don't do like OTC trading anymore. That's like, I guess, like the big difference between our previous lives um, trading crypto. But we're obviously familiar with that whole world from doing it for a very long amount of time. But anyway, so that, that's a sort of my path through like the crypto sort of market side of things. Um, seen some wild things over the course of that time frame, um, but still shocked every so often um,
0: by what I see out there. But yeah, that's the, so that's sort of the background of how I got to where I am here. So, yeah, you mentioned, like, you guys do some venture, but your bread and butter is liquid stuff. Can you give, like, me a rough sense of what's the breakdown between, like, venture and liquid? And within the liquid bucket, I'm also interested in, like, what's the discretionary and systematic breakdown?
1: Yeah, so actually, to be honest, like, our venture book is actually probably larger now than our liquid on, like, a notional basis. Um, that that's really just like sort of the the undertone to that whole thing should just be like a lot of times just like having aggregate market exposure is like better than like trading around a ton. So like, and and, and that's really, it's been driven by a couple names that have just become like very large positions for us um, that are sort of in that book and like remain there. So in in terms of like an AUM, like split is probably like, I I don't know, like 55, 60, 40 on like the venture side, but like our, our sort of resourcing is concentrated on the liquid side and the liquid side obviously feeds the, sort of venture side, right? Like it, our, our venture deals are financed effectively through like our sort of open market trading that we do. So like they, they like it's a little disingenuous to be like, oh, like one outperform the other, I think a little bit just because like one feeds the other. And then like taxes obviously have to come out of the liquid side. So like that, that, that affects that balancing a lot, but yeah, that, that, or definitely like we got started in sort of the liquid OTC side. So like in 2017, that was like a very, very big market. Um mostly because the exchanges like weren't letting people on. So like it was a, it was a big portion of like all flow that was happening out there. Um but yeah, like that, that that breakdown is like very telling, I think of like sort of m- probably indicative of, like a lot of people don't necessarily need to be trading as much as they think they do. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, I mean, obviously there's like a timing aspect to that where like having a bunch totally of has been good, but in principle it might always be good. Um, okay, so, that, so that's good. That's clear. It's like 50-50 by AUM, but the time spend is a little bit more tilted towards the liquid. And within the liquid, are you guys, like, discretionary, systematic? Like, what's the breakdown there? It's a mix. Um, so CMS is about 17 people now. So we, we,
1: we do a number of different, like, avenues. We do a lot of systematic stuff in DeFi um, and definitely, like, on the sort of the more, like, active portions of that versus like just like farming like if there's like a pool that's got to like sort of get like armed against like sort of like a liquid screen like we, we do activity sort of there that's the the most systematic sort of trading that we do um and then a lot of it is like discretionary risk taking really on the other side and, and then there's sort of like what you would consider like pure arbitrage related stuff whether that's like trading basis um whether that's like sort of like farming related stuff though that's not like risk-free but that's like another sort of like slug of like what we're doing at any given time okay
0: that's interesting. I At some point I do want to drill into the characterization of like basis trades as pure arbitrage. Uh, but I think that's like a little bit down the line for my plan for what we'll talk about. So, okay, great. So it's nice to have you guys on actually, because so far a lot of the conversations we've been having are you know purely systematic like sort of HFT or HFT adjacent players. So it's nice to talk to like a discretionary risk taker. I feel like you can have a kind of different tenor of conversation. Uh, and then in, in my background, I've done a little bit of both. I did... Um, I guess i should introduce myself so my name is evo um i'm head of research here at duidx uh, i have a background in trading i worked at an equity stat place i made markets in crypto a little bit and then uh, most recently i was a discretionary trader at d on the fixed income desk where we certainly were involved in some things that felt like basis trades um so i guess i want to kind of get into the meat of the of the podcast, which I'm hoping is going to be basically like drilling into the liquid side, drilling into the discretionary side of the liquid side, and kind of going through like, top to bottom, what does it feel like to, you know, put on a trade at CMS. So starting with the kind of very first part, which is like, how do you kind of generate the idea for a trade, which we can call the thesis, maybe like, what are some common sources of theses for you guys? You know, are, are there patterns among the things that you look at in the market that help you generate theses? maybe who on your team is coming up with the theses like kind of what, what comes to mind when you think of like the median trade ge- generation process at CMS? Yeah. So I'll say this, it's, it's very, it's very like
1: uniform in that, um, well uniform is probably the wrong word, but it's very like flat org structure in the sense of like anybody can pitch anything at any time and like should, if they think there's like a reason that like for whatever they think like there's edge in sort of like a trade. So if there's there's really not like a hierarchical thing of like all right you pitch it and then it like rolls up and then somebody like looks at it like it's very like ad hoc and like on the fly of like hey this happened or like this news is happening and we should like put sort of put this trade on um but so there's like news related things of like why you may or may not think something should move um but like in really the bulk of it is like the sort of these like lag leap type relationships where like some part of the market will move for whatever reason right like let's say there's like the ETH, here's a good example, like a couple of weeks ago, right? Like the ETH merge trade sort of comes out because they put like a firm timeline on it. You see risk get bid in it and you're like, all right, like we're going to participate this and like go through it. But then the second order sort of effect of like what we like to think about is like, all right, like where, w- what's likely to like have like a sympathetic move on this? And I think like a lot of people caught this move, right? We didn't do this trade, but like a thing would be like, all right, well, there's this whole idea that like cash rates got to get like go somewhere and like ETH Classic has been like, always like the meme of like, where like sort of this flow will go. So like you buy ETH Classic off it. We're, we're, we didn't do that exact one, but that would be an example of like, all right, like we, we wanna own this thing against like the like the board of risk. And, like, we, we tend to pair these things, right? So, like, we don't sell a single name against it. We'll, like, try to, like, sell broad baskets of exposure against it if we, like, don't want to just take, like, outright market exposure. If we do want to just take, like, outright market exposure, that's, like, a whole different thing. And, like, that, that fits more into, like, whatever our global risk is at any given point. Like, how, much, how many deltas are we, like, running? Um, and, like, when I say deltas, like, we keep all of our risk in Bitcoin terms, which I don't, I don't know if a lot of people do anymore. This is, like, definitely much more of a common thing years ago when we do this. So we, we, we strike everything to a beta to Bitcoin and then we keep things in Bitcoin terms. Um, and we'll like sell either other things against it or just like Bitcoin and ETH in some like function of it against it um, to like sort of put that on. So you'd be like, in this example, you'd be like, all right, we're going to buy ETC and we're going to like sell, I don't know, BTC ETH sold near AVAX, like in uh, waiting against it in beta terms of Bitcoin. And then like, that'll sort of be like the trade. Um, and then the other way you can sort of take that out is like, all right, like if, if it's going to run, like what's it going to drag up with it? Like, where is that like money, like going to like fly to next? Or like, where are people like suddenly going to be like looking, Hey, risk is bid. I want to own sort of these things. And I, I think you saw that as the second order effect, right? So like ETH runs and then you see near run and then you see like ABAX run and like, then you see soul run. And then like, after all that stuff slows, it's like, all right now like Bitcoin sort of like takes the turn. So we play a lot of this like rotational, Sort of trade of like where like you can sort of see money moving through the system. This is like very good when the market's doing good. This is like useless when the market's falling down because everything's just like falling down in tandem to get sort of get her. It's like it's harder to do this like as a trade like in like a bear market time. But like in if money is like aggressively like chasing, like it's great because you're just like I I do. I've talked about this definitely on Twitter a bunch of like this hot ball of money sort of like concept. But like we do trade it in the sense of like we look to see like where money is just like moving throughout the system um twitter's actually not great for this because it tends to be kind of lagged you kind of like want to be looking like one step forward from it and like right like what's being ignored and like why may it or may it not become like interesting to the same people that are like ripping up some other thing at any given time um i don't know i said a lot there but like that's, that's a lot of what we're looking at like on the discretionary stuff
0: like on the fly gotcha yeah so it sounds like i mean To say it back slightly differently, like these are pretty flows driven theses, like you have no particular view on Ethereum classic or near, I assume that's like at all fundamentally derived. You think there's this hot ball of money right now, the hot ball of money is on like, I don't know, whatever it is, call it Ethereum. And last time when there was hot ball money Ethereum, the next thing that happened is it rolled over to some asset that you now have a forecast on because of that. Is that like a fair characterization? Very much so, because like any fundamental like thesis we may have on any of these things we're just gonna not be exhibiting in like the trade
1: duration that these things. like we're putting these things on for days to weeks, or of time frame like and, and honestly, like we'd more likely structure those as like venture bets um, if we did like have like a longer term fundamental thesis, but we don't let like that dic- like we don't like look at something and be like, this thing's got to go to zero. We think it has like ze- like fundamentally no value. We're not gonna like buy it in the interim because we like think it might like have some like property that like moves
0: off some other move. Like we don't, we don't let those like sort of like thoughts dictate the shorter term directional risk taking. Gotcha. And when, when you, when you make these flows bets, do you typically find you have like, like how close to a smoking gun? I feel like, you know, for, for, for discretionary traders, often the like holy grail can be a kind of smoking gun flows bet where, you know, you either know there was some distressed seller or some non-economic flow and you're either going to trade in front of that or behind that. And you're kind of like almost guaranteed to make money in the situation because you know, the price is moving for reasons that like aren't reflected by anything that you would want to be fighting against, but instead just like some player is doing something in a noisy way, like how right. close to that holy grail are you on this kind of thing? Do you, is it more of a, like a diffuse flows bet or you're like, I think there are specific players that are like rolling this hot ball of money and I kind of know who they are and I kind of know their size. So, um, the flows in this stuff is like, it's
1: like, it's still very retail, right? So, and, and it's like very much retail with leverage. Um, and I, and I say, this is just like, it's not, it's, it's degraded over time. Like it's the signals have like obviously gotten worse. Like they're like, and I would say like, it's like decaying sort of like in your ability to like do this. And like, there's a world in like two or three years that we talk and we'll just be like, yeah, like we used to do that. It just like, doesn't really make sense anymore. But like, as it stands now, like it's still a thing. But, but it is like very retail sort of like flows, sort of, which is good because like you're, you get like predictable somewhat patterns, I feel of like that activity, because it's like a lot of people acting independently, but like, there's like a lot of small actors in it. Um, And also like, you have a lot of good information that comes from like liquidations and like liquidations like really help. Like I, I tend to like, actually just like have the liquidation, like sort of flying, like those feeds like running through constantly and like I'm looking at that all day even more so than I'm like looking at price like a lot of times because that's like showing you like where the system's getting like pushed from fair for something for like some reason so like that's like very very important is like having that information part of the problem is like exchanges have like either started to obfuscate that information a little bit more or made it harder to like parse out um as time has gone on but I still find it to be like extremely useful to see like where stuff's being pushed.
0: Yeah, no that 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 makes a ton of sense. I mean, that's kind of like the canonical example of thing I was talking about, where you know there were four sellers somewhere, and you know you can that's like pretty valuable information. I'm kind of wondering, like along these lines of of you know discerning the level of detail on the flows beyond what's available by just looking at price. You know, you guys, you said you don't do much OTC. Like I have done some OTC trading in in my time, and a lot a lot of that game I perceive is about kind of relationships with desks that see a lot of interesting flow and have a lot of interesting. You know context on the market moves beyond what's available you know just at a bloomberg terminal or something um is that like a big part of your process do you feel like relationships add a lot of value for your understanding of the market or are you mostly just using like publicly available data sets
1: no we talk to everybody we keep like i mean we keep open lines with everybody and it's a two-way information flow too right so like i mean like we're sharing what we're seeing as much as like we're getting information from so like we definitely keep a a pretty good line I think this this sort of helps that me and Bobby had such a pretty deep background um, before we started CMS. Like we just sort of knew all, like the players have changed a little bit, but a lot of like the big ones are sort of still around um, and like have kept like good relationships. And like we do, we do do a fair amount of business still with sort of those people, um, which is very much helped like our ability to like, Hey, like what information is out there? What's happening? This was really important. um, Especially over the last couple months, because so many of the liquidations and selling was like, happening off exchange in the sense that like you needed to know like who was getting taken out of business effectively and like what was being sold as a function of that. And you could really only gleam it in real time from like talking to people. I mean, like it all comes out later. Right. But like, it's useless, like reading through the bankruptcy docs or whatever that came out two days ago with like three AC situation, like, isn't going to help you today. Right. Like that's like, that's giving you information that happened sort of already for the most part. Um, it might yeah. give you a little bit of insight into what's going to go forward, but like in the moment you got to like, kind of know what's going on and like, you got to just like sort of be in the the conversation and like the flow there. So yeah, like keeping very, like keeping up in like conversations with everyone and sort of sharing that information flow is very beneficial.
0: Yeah. This is something I think that's easy to underestimate perhaps as someone who hasn't been in the seat, but like that, the type of information and the color of information that you get from like talking to especially traders that are just at very important institutions or just like for some reason have good networks. Like they just know things that are hard to know unless you're in exactly that seat. And I think crypto is probably actually maybe a market where this is less true than some markets in TradFi since like a lot of the trading is electronic and, and happens on lit venues and stuff. But still I you know I can imagine that this is a pretty, pretty good source of alpha. So I wanted to talk Kind of about a specific part of the thesis generation process, which is like, how do you how do you assess your confidence in these theses, or how do you like validate the thesis once you have it? So you so you have this hot ball of money coming back to this like kind of case study, and and sure, I believe you, like this is probably a real effect, but like how how do how do how confident are you? And, and I'm leading towards kind of like how are you going to size this trade, which we'll talk about in detail afterwards. But like, how do you start to like put numbers to that? Yeah.
1: Um... It's, it's a very, like it, look it's an impossible thing to know in it, but it's like, how do you like handicap yourself on like what the reality of it is? Um, I, I, I tend to think that like these things work in regimes. So like we'll start off small with it. And then if it's like working, we tend to like be very aggressive quickly to like add to it. And then the opposite is true of like, if it starts to like degrade, we just cut it quickly in the sense of like, all right, like if we're doing these like rotational trades and we're like, I don't know, we're like doing two or three round trips of them a week and it's like sort of working. And then, like, the P&L starts, like, getting a little worse. It's, like, a function of the notion that we put on it. And then, like, it starts going, like, you, you're just basically, like, all right, like, something has changed. And, like, maybe we don't know why, but, like, there's just not a, like, ton of reason to do it anymore. So we just stop. So, like, that's, I think, like, the biggest thing is you just, like, you kind of, like, cut bait on it. And you're, like, all right, we're done. So I'd say, like, we don't, we don't really sit there and be, like, hey, like, what do we think the probability is on this? First, we go, like hey, we'll like ramp this thing up and then like we'll ramp it down really quickly too. So like that's like how we sort of like sort of get an implied probability out of it. It's just like we size it up very quickly like as it's working. But you got to watch gotcha. out you don't get like bodied, right? Like you don't know, want a situation where like you just keep doing it bigger and then like suddenly it turns on you viciously and like you just lose the whole thing. Like you got to also
0: be like reasonable and like that sizing Yeah, like, you Sounds it, yeah. like you're describing like an implicit trending forecast, at least for this class of thesis where you're like, my confidence in this thesis gets stronger if like the first 10% realizes on the time frame that I expected to realize kind of like that. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's reasonable. And I'm sure for other theses, you might have, you know, some different thesis where like maybe you even have a meaner burning um, kind of framework, but but on this one in particular, I definitely buy that it's going to be kind of like a trending effect. So that makes sense to me. So yeah, let's talk about sizing like holistically. So we have some notion of like I guess how you calibrate your confidence on the trade or or at least in one specific example, but there's also kind of then a universal questions around like portfolio construction. So you said a thing that I think I'll say back and make sure I'm understanding is basically, you know, one North star for your market neutral status is like your beta to BTC, which um, like, I think that's, you're kind of using it as the stand-in for like the first principal component or like just crypto beta in general.
1: Yeah. Um, I, yeah. and I say, like, we, we've toyed with the idea of changing that a lot in the last, like, six months. Um, mostly, like, because it, it feels like, and this is, like, me not being, like, super, super, like, quantitative at all. But, like, it, it feels as like Bitcoin trades differently than the rest of the asset class, more so in, like, the trailing, like, 12 months than it ever did sort of in, like, my lifetime of, like, trading it. Um, but, like, yeah, it was, it was always, it was how we always did the risk. It, like, circle back in the day. Um, and it's, like, sort of how we just, like, adopted here is, like, that, like, we did just, like, kept risk in units of Bitcoin, and, like, that was what we would target. Obviously, you have notional, like, caps on everything, too. Like, you can't, like, get yourself to a point where you're going to get taken out because, like, the Bitcoin betas get so low and you end up getting super levered without realizing it. So, like, we, like, watch that as well. But, like, we really do just, like, keep things, like, in, like, the Bitcoin beta terms as, like, a stand-in for, like, having, like spiders that you can just like sell against stuff right or like use as like your like unit of like market exposure um yeah but but yeah that's that's how we continue to do it um I, i think it works out it works out well in a lot of ways but i'm always sort of keen in the back of my mind of like thinking of like how do we like sort of do this better i i wish there was like an index product that was like really good that you could like lean on and like you could also trade and that was like also something you could like use for like risk purposes as well but Like FTX kind of
0: tried it, but like, I don't think it like really got popular either. Yeah. There's not a ton of liquidity, but do you manage other risk factors besides like the first principal component, leaving aside the conversation of like, if Bitcoin or, or some basket of crypto Delta would be the right thing. Like I could also imagine you being worried like, oh, I'm, I'm neutral to crypto Delta, but I'm like very overweight altcoins relative to like the core or something like that. Do you guys have like a PC process for that? Or is that mostly like a secondary concern? (laughs) So we look at it, but it's like we don't have it like
1: quantified. It's more just like a heuristic that like all the traders are like cognizant of, like that they're doing. Like 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 if four of your names that you're like sort of like long against like the board with, or like just other flavors of like lending and DeFi. It's like well, you have the same bet on. Like you gotta like like you gotta count for that somewhere in this. So like we don't really have a quantitative way of like measuring all that. Um, or we, we could we just like don't we just like are very much like constantly looking at like right what is like the basket of like all of our names look like and like what are the like effects that they all have on each other and, but it's it's very much like up to the traders to like decide what they like want to do with that first like we like have rules hard-coded in place for those effects yeah
0: yeah and i mean you guys are like placing a stretch in that so it's not obvious that you would want to be like constantly hedging out the like top five risk factors. Like you wouldn't be left with much of a portfolio and you'd be pretty capital inefficient. Right. Which Kind That of leads me to my next question actually, which is like, how many bets do you have on at a given time? Like, you know, it's, it's one thing to have, you know, 200 bets and, and have the first three principal components hedged out and, and say like my residual risk is, is really whatever, like high sharp ratio and stuff. It's another thing. If you have like three bets, then like, you know, I, so I'm kind of curious, like, how would you characterize your portfolio? I'm trying to keep it under five.
1: Um That being said, when the market is like mania, like it was the back half of 2021, like that number will get to like 15. And like, it's it's a little bit of like, there's two ways to look at it. One is like, you either like get sloppy and like undisciplined. And the other is like, if you're just like making enough money that you could like, it's, it's worse to just like not be taking the shots than it is to like. Worried about losing because you're not being perfect, so like we we definitely let ourselves get loose when like the market is like very like it's just like working right, like we're just like there's a lot of money like flying around, and like that I think stands like you end up making more when like the times are good and rather than like being super like buttoned up and like managing things. Um, but that's just like how we choose to like do it, so like I, I don't mind getting like a little sloppy with like how sort of things are and like not being perfect when. opportunity
0: set is just like crazy
1: but that like yeah that's
0: like very unique times like in the market yeah totally i i talked about this a little bit on a previous podcast but actually like i feel like one of the things that's sort of underrated framework is when when things are crazy your most precious resource is actually like trader bandwidth and so you can you can spend your trader bandwidth on like carefully dotting your eyes and like hedging everything or you can spend your trader bandwidth on like chasing down the next marginal opportunity and like not worrying about having everything perfectly in order and in normal times when trader bandwidth isn't so constrained then the next marginal opportunity is not that good and you might as well go back and like make sure everything's hedged and in order but in like in in wild times you know you have a lot of demand on that trader bandwidth and the optimal thing to do is to like yeah do more opportunities right. just, versus exactly it's just keep going and i
1: think like the best example of i that, that i remember was um was in 2017 in like the mania when i was like working on the desk circle um we were just like massively understaffed we had like basically two traders covering like a 24-hour clock because like we went from doing five million dollars of business a day to like 200 million dollars of business a day and like high touch otc sort of trading and this is with bitcoin like at five thousand, right so like just like for scale and um like we just had a ton of trade breaks and like these trade breaks were like getting big and like Accounting was taking so long to like wreck to like where we were and our tooling was so bad and like rudimentary that like we were just eating two hundred fifty, five hundred K like trade breaks. Like it's something of go in your favor, but like trade breaks tend to not. Um, and like we'd have them like every other week. And I remember having not a fight, but like talking to like the accounting and management about it, and they're like, This is like a problem, like we have to like fix this, we gotta get this true up. And I was like, if I slow down to fix this, we'll make tremendously less money. I was like, it's, just like you just have to accept that this is a cost of doing business and it looks silly, but like where we are in the world right now, like we just need to keep moving forward and like just be cognizant that like there's going to be like, there's going to be breaks back there and like, it'll be fine. It's just, we got to like keep moving forward and we got to keep like the business like going as fast as possible. I'm okay with like triaging things that are like breaking a little bit and like moving forward with the market, just like when stuff gets crazy. Um, but like crypto kind of
0: just forced me into that a couple of times in my life. For the listeners, a trade break on an OTC desk is like, if there's details of a trade in a chat and, you know, then maybe the trade that's actually executed at the end of the day or something is different from what's in the chat and then it's someone's fault. And, you know, then like the middle office of both firms have to go and get involved and figure out what actually happened. And it takes a lot of time and, and usually no one leaves happy. Yeah. Um, nobody, nobody's ever happy. Honestly, they, like ours were
1: like ridiculous things where like somebody'd be like bought 500 Bitcoin and like it got booked as a sell, right? And like it, it was like, <laughs> like and, you'd be, and you'd be like, well, how did you get that wrong? And it'd be like, well, I had 13 Skype chats going and everyone was demanding quotes and like I don't know, I punched one wrong. Like it just happened, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, that's wild. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, to be fair, I, I actually think lifetime to date, we may have worked out on trade breaks positive and I'll tell you why. Like in our favor, because And this is like a funny story too um you know how so bitmex launched the perpetual futures contract um and like funding which everybody just like sort of takes for granted and like understands now or doesn't understand but like in general like you get the idea like so the bitmex perpetual contract had funding but like we we didn't know about it so like we were we started trading on bitmex and we started trading on bitmex pretty large because we were using it to hedge because it was such like deep liquidity And, and it was really far away. If you remember, like, I don't know if you do or not, but like in the early days with BitMEX with the perp, um, it was just like a really, really retail heavy thing. And it would trade away from index a lot. So like, we were always on the other side of it, right? Because like people would sell us crypto, and we would look for like, where can we sell this highest? And it's like, oh, BitMEX, because it would be pushed the furthest from like fair, and funding would be the highest. And like, same way on vice versa, it would get cheap. So we were always like net collectors of funding. And like, probably four months into doing this, like, accounting was, like, hey, like, your reconciliation for BitMEX doesn't make any sense. There's, like, all of this money in this account that, like, shouldn't be here. And I was, like, what do you mean? And, like, we, like, wrecked the trades. And I was, like, the trades are all in the database. Like, everything that we think is there is right. And, like, but the but the balances didn't add up. And we are like, this is, like, where we discovered funding. Like, this is how we, like, figured out that, like, wow. oh, like, there's been, like, we've been collecting, like, and... And for, like, an idea of, like, how crazy was that, like, there was a single weekend where we collected, like, 35 Bitcoin in funding, like, just, like, outrageous, like, on a day, so, like, on a Saturday, like, on three periods. So, we just had a ton of this extra Bitcoin at the end of it, um, which, like, undid all the other trade breaks we had had historically, but, like, just a a complete random bull
0: market sort of story. Yeah, it's great to be on the other side of that, of the flows, because you have the OTC desk, and then you're just collecting funding on the perpetual venue. And you yeah. don't even know. It's like a Christmas surprise when you find out. That's awesome. Well, well, because when a accountant comes to you and they're like,
1: hey, this is like way off. I'm like, all right, well, is it way off good or is it way off bad, right? Yeah. And they're like
0: <laughs> It's never way
1: off good, but I guess it's it never. It's never. <laughs> and they're like, you have way too much Bitcoin. I was like, oh, well, like, I'm not super worried about it, but we got to figure it out. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Stuff like that. So kind of on the subject of this, like the next phase of the trade, life cycle is like you know what you want to do you know how big you want to be now you actually have to go put it on um so like what what are the like top of mind considerations for execution for you guys i mean i know obviously like the hand-to-hand combat of otc execution is probably a little bit more interesting than if you're doing pure electronic trading but like are is execution like a big part of your mind share or not not as much it is like it matters Um, I,
1: i think also funding is like really important right so like in in particular, you want to be like, all right, like, am I going to get paid to put this trade on, right? Like, it, like, what does the funding at, like market look like? Do I want to do it in spot? Do I want to do it in derivatives? Um, like, that's that's generally like the first like place we're looking. And then it's like, all right, well, like, how, like, what do I think like the decay on this trade is? Like, how fast do I need to like try to put this thing on, or do I just like sit around and wait and be like opportunistic on it and sort of grab it? We probably hand trade more than like most firms that are out there, but like we do have the ability to obviously electronically execute as well. It's just like our, our traders tend to like execute a lot of stuff like just by hand as well. Like we're like very like involved in the market that way. Um, it's probably like antiquated and we're like being dinosaurs a little bit. But I think we also just like doing it.
0: And by hand trade, you mean you like open up the Exchange UI and press like TWOP and, and put in like a thousand lots or whatever. Or like we we'll like sit there and actually just like punch all the trades. Yeah, either or. As opposed to doing TWAP, like literally just do like five watts,
1: five watts. Five yeah, watts. or just like place them in the order book as we want them or like lift them like, a, like if the market takes bit right. bigger and you're trying to buy, like grab some, like vice versa. Yeah. So we, we gotcha. have like a lot of discretionary
0: execution with the individual traders. Okay. Well, then you must think you must think there's like, you know, some, some value to be captured there. Because if you didn't, you'd probably just, I don't know, throw it into some VWAP algorithm or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think we do. I think like there's there's alpha in, in there still for crypto. That won't be forever, but I think like there's yeah. like some like execution that can be like, th- and there's there's things that can be captured by like having like the trader like physically like sitting there doing it. um It depends on the asset too, like a lot, like Bitcoin needs not so much, but like the longer tail stuff for sure.
0: Yeah, and so in my experience as a Discretionary trader, like a lot of the relationships that you're able to build are because you can send people flow. Um, It it sounds like maybe that's that's less part of it. Like if you're trading on big lit venues, obviously this isn't a consideration. So so how do you maintain those relationships? Like how do you make sure you're the first call if something interesting happens? If, If are you sending flow like sort of preferentially or not really?
1: I mean there is some, but like I mean more I think it's that we're also like sharing information, right? Like I think it's very, very much like two-way flow of like how you're seeing color on the market. So I think that's like the more important aspect.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, as opposed to the kind of like typical dealer-client relationship where it's pretty much one Yeah,
1: I mean like our our balance sheet just isn't enough for us to be like commanding sort of like that relationship where we just like, we expect information to come to us because like we'll trade with you sort of thing. Like I, I just like, we don't sit there in the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay. So once once you're done executing, and you have the trade on, you know, now, now you have this thing. Um, how do you guys think about monitoring trades once they're in the book? I mean, I think you were saying your, your average holding periods, maybe not that long, like two to three weeks or something. So this isn't maybe a huge part of the process. But like, you know, wh- what does it feel like to, to have the trade on and be looking at? You know, what are you looking at, basically? Yeah. So to be honest, like a lot of the natural like
1: evolution of like a trade sort of like coming off and like sort of like being realized is if some other trade is coming up, right? So a lot of this like just looks at like, hey, like and I'm using completely random examples of like names here, like your long AVAX and like, I don't know, call it just like short a couple like altcoin futures sort of against it. But like suddenly you think the Solana like is going to like catch up with that. So like a lot of it will just be like, you're buying Solana and then you're like, all right, well, does that initial position, like what's your like thesis in? Is like, is this kind of played out or is it like not working? Just like selling that against it as like your risk, right? So like a lot of positions just get like sort of like swapped out with other positions a lot of times. So a lot of it is just like the natural or, or I mean, or they realize vaguely and you're like, all right, like this like hit, like this is like coming off and then you're like unwinding the whole thing. But a lot of it really is just like. Sort of these like swapping of like names with other names, like as like time goes on. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: Yeah, how big a part is the like PL of the trade? Like obviously when you're watching it, you, you know, the kind of thing you're coming back to as your North Star is like, has my thesis happened? Or, or really, I guess it's like, do I expect my thesis still to happen? And that's either because maybe your thesis expanded or your thesis has realized or whatever the case may be. But you know, the kind of thing driving the position should be how much of my thesis do I still think is in play? So you're kind of saying, like, one thing you use to assess that is like, obviously, what's the PL of in the trade yet? Like, has the thing actually moved as I expected it to move? But another piece is kind of like, is my thesis kind of shifting to another name? Like, maybe I was long AVAX because there was this hot ball of money idea. But now actually, like, maybe my trade hasn't really done anything. But this thesis is actually shifting over to another name. And this sort of like the natural process of exiting the AVAX position and buying whatever the other thing is. Yeah,
1: exactly. They're, they're... I would say that is probably more likely than not the reason that sort of a trade on wines is that something else takes its place.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. So how much do you fiddle with your positions? Like, you know, let's say, you know, not much happens. Maybe, maybe you expected the price to move one way, let's say 10% over two week horizon and, and, you know, you're, you're one weekend and not much has happened. Like, are you are you worried? Are you happy to sit there? Um, what's kind of like, yeah. How much do you fiddle? Not a lot in the fiddling is a
1: function of like market volume as it is like time, if that makes sense. Right? Like, so it's like one of these things where if there's a ton of stuff happening in the market and like everything's like moving and like, it seems like everything's going a million miles a minute and like tons of volumes moving through and your thesis isn't like working out then like that matters more than if the market's just like doing nothing and sits there for a week and your thesis isn't playing out. Right. Cause like one of them is sort of like saying like, Hey, like market participants are paying attention and doing things and like, they're not doing the things that you think. So you're like more likely to be right wrong than like nothing's happening anywhere. So like, why would you expect any thesis to like be playing? So I, yeah. it, it's like one of these things where it's like, it's, it's, it is a function of time, but it's also a function of like the aggregate market, like doing anything at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I think in some of the conversations we've had on this show in the past, we've kind of talked about some notion of like volume time, where like volume and time are the same, kind of measured with the same unit, and like information, like information about the price, is is comes through volume, not through time, um, and and that kind of has some nice properties when you're thinking about. I don't know some kind of like more mic- market microstructure topic so it's interesting to hear you basically saying I think the same thing here which is like even if you're zooming out to the time scale of weeks like yeah. the sort of like volume that's happened matters more than the time that's happened like that's the real thing to pay attention to at least Yeah very much though so. Yeah that's cool um, okay so one thing that kind of comes up when I think about the challenge of assessing like if your thesis is realized is there'll be like maybe some other things happening in the market at the same time. So like, let's say you're along some asset for for some kind of specific reason. You have a view on some flow uh, and, and the asset, let's say, goes up. But, you know, it could have gone up for many reasons. It could have gone up because your thesis realized or it could have gone up because there's some like extenuating factor. Like, how often do you find yourself unsure if like a price movement is because your thesis realized or there's like something that you weren't aware of and you should actually stay in the position, even though you already have. Kind of like realized all of the PNL that you thought you were going to get from your original thesis. Does that actually happen, or is it him kind of making this up?
1: No, you're not. I mean, like you never know, right? So there's always like the hesitation of doubt of like this thing did what happened because I thought it did. Um, I'd say this like you end up with the same conclusion of what to do though, right? Because like if it's moving for a reason that you don't understand versus like the reason you thought it should, like. The the bigger thing is like, well it's moving for a reason I don't understand, so I should probably cut this anyway because like I don't know what's going on, versus like it hit what I was gonna do because I thought it was so I'm gonna like exit it anyway, because this is like sort of the end of it. So you end up doing the same thing, but yeah, it's constant. You never have any idea really of like why sort of things happen and whether or not you were right
0: versus just like lucky. So is execution on the way out in any way different from execution on the way in, or do you think of it just like very similarly? very similarly like yeah. pretty much the same yeah unless there's like look
1: unless there's like a sudden urgency because something just gets pushed so far from fair and and like i say fair like loosely here but like it gets whatever you think it should be yeah yeah right like if you're like i bought this thing at 20 think it should go to 25 and it just like went to 30 and i don't know what's going on you're like yeah i'm going to get out of that real quick but like other than that like you're thinking about the execution
0: out the door the same way you were as in the door for the most part yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So moving on to kind of like the final stage in the trades lifecycle, like after all is said and done, you've exited, you are faced with the question of like, how do we evaluate if this was a good trade or not? Because I think an extremely common outcome is like you had an idea, you put it on, you lost money and you took it off. And now you're like, was it a bad trade or was it actually a good trade where I like got unlucky or there was some extenuating circumstance? Um, I'm kind of curious about like what do you look back on a trade about other than the PL? because like PL is just a number you know you can look at it it has some information certainly but it's not the full story like are, in your mind are there kind of historical examples of trades where you lost a lot of money but you actually when you look back you're like that was a good trade and like I would do that trade again.
1: Oh, there's definitely tons of things where I like would definitely have like gotten to the same conclusion and done the same thing like even if it pushed it now I, I think the bigger thing I look back on is like was there someplace else I should have been focused and like, was this like a good use of like my resources, like time, right? Like, like, I think this is like very important in like the bull markets with crypto, um, because like things happen so fast and like so aggressively often at times that like, look, even if you were right, like maybe that was like a really poor use of like resources of like where you should have been like looking at any given time. And I know we, we like sort of been like talking about basis like earlier and like we, we, do and like used to like much larger, like do like a lot of like rolling futures. Um, and I remember just like in sort of when the, when the market was picking up being like, look, like this is good. And like, this makes sense. And like, this is great. But like, we're missing like where the action is, right? Like, this is like not a good use of time. And like, maybe the thesis is right. And like, maybe we shouldn't like leave our wheelhouse of like, where we sort of like, know we have edge and like, sort of like where like things are working. But like, you, you have to like, look at like the broader market and be like, is this really where I should be like focusing my attention. I think like that's the big thing you should be looking when you go backwards and stuff. Um, it's like, what, what else was going on? And like, what did I miss? Like what,
0: where should I have been? Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good framework. And I think there's something else in there also, which you touched on, which is like when you're a discretionary trader, at least if you're not fully automated, there is this like operational component of running these strategies. And if you have to constantly be rolling in and out of various contracts to get like, you know, whatever, a couple bits here, a couple bits there, that's a lot of trader bandwidth that's spent on like this operational task that could be spent on thinking about, you know, what's the next thing that's going to go 10 X. And depending on the market, it might be better to do the latter. And crypto is just so approachable, right? Like pretty much
1: not all, but like a, the lion's share of the information is available to everybody at all times. And like you, you're constrained by your resources to like lead in all that information and consume it. So like you really have to like, look back at things and being like, Hey, if I just like did nothing and just like kept looking at like the field, like, was that like better? Maybe. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that like, when I look back at like periods, like where we did well, like I always end up still looking like, Hey, like where, where was things even like more interesting? And like, was I just like catching like beta to like the aggregate sort of market moving in some direction and like had a trade that was good in it. But like, that really wasn't like where the action was. Yeah. Yeah. It,
0: it's, it's curious. Yeah. So you, you say crypto is kind of approachable and, and I broadly agree. But I'm curious, like from this conversation we've had, assuming that you think it's like a decent reflection of your process, like where would you think that, you know, the average listener, what of these things that we've discussed, would you think they could improve the most on like what what, what when you say approachable, like I sort of believe you, but I also kind of think like most people lose money empirically and like all these leverage products help people blow out really fast. And I mostly think it's actually kind of like a hostile market. Uh, no, I agree. As opposed to like,
1: as no, opposed no, to like I, just
0: going and buying stocks or something.
1: No, I think that's true. Um, I I think I, I think that's like actually like very true. Specifically on like the like the leverage side, it's like a, it's a very punishing business um, uh, for most market participants um, because of the volatility and plus like just sort of the weirder risks you have um that you don't have in like traditional where like assets can be stolen, like exchanges can go down, counterparties can just like disappear. I mean they can happen in tradfi, but not in the same like level that it happens here. Um I, I guess I meant it approachable in the sense that like I don't know, if you look at like all the like really big wealth generating events that have happened in like the crypto market over like the last five years, which is a lot of like the history, they they were sort of available to everybody um along like the life cycle of them, right? Like, anybody could have, like, bought ETH at the ICO. Like, anybody could have, like, bought Bitcoin in the beginning. But, like, obviously, that was a timing thing. So, that's probably even, like, a worse example. But even some of, like, the biggest, like, performers of the last sort of two-year, like, cycle, like, they were all bargain-free to be picked up and, like, sort of purchase, like, things there. And these these obviously are, like, longer bets that you would have had to take and just, like, take a more market exposure. But um, I don't know. I don't know. Like those trades were available to everybody is like the biggest thing I got, like I come back to on all this stuff. Like there wasn't anything special. There wasn't some like carve out of access like you needed. It's like everyone was able to appreciate and like take those trades when they came up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, you're definitely right about that. That is a kind of like the egalitarian promise of crypto. And I think it's, it's largely true. Um, I did want to kind of like something I, I probably should have brought this up earlier, but you know, I think one, when we were talking about the, flows theses that are maybe your bread and butter lately, or at least in this type of market, there's kind of another, another type of thesis, which is like, you know, we kind of saw a great example of this recently, where you have some, you know, basically you have like three arrows, and they blew up, and, you know, they pushed the market down. And I think like, a very reasonable thought for 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 a retail investor might have been like, well, look, I know that this like hedge fund with a bunch of AUM was very levered long, and they had to like, exit all these positions and at the same time, the market went down. And like, you might put two and two together and say, in fact, this last leg of this bear market was, you know, these four sellers. And, and since I've read a paper about market impact and I know that it decays over time, I should be long here because I, d- I might not know anything, but I do know that three arrows just blew up and had to sell a bunch. Like, how would you assess that thought process from the retail investor? And like, is that reasonable? Is that a good trade for them to put on? Like, how would you improve that thought process?
1: I I mean I'd improve the forecasts pest because you have to think of the second and third order effects of that in the sense that like all right three arrows blowing up blows up who else and like this one in particular there was just like I mean like the contagion thing was a little bit of a meme at the end like with Twitter but like there was like knock on effects especially in the beginning right so like you 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 had this was like a real problem where like you didn't have great visibility into it just as like a regular sort of retail participant but you have to think of like an event happens in the market and you'd be like oh well this should happen after but what's more important is, like, what, what is that going to, like, kick off in the short term that, like, could push things even further from, like, their fare, right? Like, why, like, in this case, like, three arrows, like, caused other people to get liquidated after, right? Like, they knocked on yeah. a lot of additional selling after it. So, like, and, and, yeah, like, after the end of all that, like, obviously, it seemed like we, like, bounced off and, like, we're, we're still sort of living through this. So, it's, like, not easy to say, like, that's 100% would have, like, worked. But, like, like that, that thesis was right. It was just, like, not straight
0: intuitive of, like, the timing on it yeah yeah no that that's super important i mean i think we have this kind of like deleveraging cycle framework and knowing where you are and the deleveraging is where all the money is obviously and it's like kind of easy to say oh well three hours blew up so now it's time to be long but obviously that that only tells you that we're not like on the way up it doesn't tell you we're done with the down part yet um so yeah what would you what would you encourage retail investors to know where we are on that like deleveraging part of the cycle like are there you know, on-chain metrics are there publicly available data sets that would tell them like aggregate leverage in the system is down ninety percent. And that means like that this deleveraging has mostly run its course, and now I can more confidently be long.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I think you can look at like the OI and like the funding as like one proxy for it. Like there was like a lot of on chain activity with Celsius in particular that you could like look at. So like that's useful. But like reality is like price, right? Like when we kind of just like flatlined for like a couple weeks you could like be like, all right, like if somebody like really needed to sell, like it doesn't like really look like it's being like borne out in the tape right now. So like, I think that like gives you like confidence of like, all right, like it's like, there's, there's enough time has passed that if there was like some strife that had to like be worked through and some like risk that had to get chucked, like it should be gone. Um, So I think like that was really your best heuristic this time was like, all right, like just the quietness.
0: Yeah, that's very reasonable. Like if you make some assumptions that the sort of, marginal price setter in the market doesn't have any more information about this deleveraging cycle than you do, then they're all just kind of waiting for the actual force flows to happen. Then if there's no price movement, then that means that there's there's no force flows happening. Like if if there were other markets that had better information than you did, then they, they might be able to do a thing like pull forwards the impact of those force flows they know are going to happen. And then, you know, the price not moving might be have a little less information, but if you kind of expect that everyone has about the same information that you do and there's, you know, literally nothing hitting the bid and like the bid just holds where it is, then I think that does tell you something useful. So yeah, I agree. I think price is probably like reasonable in this case, although I would, if it was, if I was doing it, I think I would try and find, yeah, look at OI or like find some on-chain leverage. Yeah. Look at Celsius maybe even like try and talk to some people who have better information than I do. I mean, I guess that's sort of like easy for me to say since I live in a somewhat connected position, but a little bit harder for but, just the average yeah. person on Twitter. This one was unique too,
1: where like, it was very hard to go have those conversations because like a lot of those people you were having conversations with were like dealing with problems themselves. So like you were definitely not going to get like the cleanest cut of information, like across, like talking to people in that like time frame because there was like, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of people who were like knew that they couldn't just be like as free with information as they like always could. So um, I don't know, like this, this might've been a time where like it, it might've actually been like sort of as useful. I will say though, like, like crypto Twitter is late in the, like information flow for a lot of this stuff. Like people were talking about all the forced selling, like two to three days after it, like pretty much it happened. And like, yeah, there's probably like knock on like, Stuff that had like worked out of the system and like maybe it wasn't like the total low but like there were definitely people talking about like oh like 3ac's collateral has to get sold like three days after it had been sold and it was like this the market's digested this like this has like happened like if you're like sitting on 3a it was like collateral now like what are you doing like there's like clearly like the market has told you you should have
0: gotten rid of this so um yeah. I, I, I think like, that's like probably the last place information like kind of tends to get. yeah, you know, unfortunately, I guess. Dan, is there anything you think that we've missed that we should definitely touch on? Um, no, I mean this was good this was like a lot of stuff. Um,
1: I, I I will say this like everybody is like everybody's way that they're gonna like find themselves like be successful if they're like trading and like taking risk and like how it works for them is gonna be like a little unique. So like don't don't feel that like you have to do things just because like somebody says this is like the way it works for them like there's like the, I don't know if you've read like the the, the series by like Schwager or, like all the market wizards ones like they're all really good but like the biggest like takeaway I find from like reading all of them is like they're all extremely different like sort of in every like one that you go through um, like everybody approaches the market much differently and there's like multiple ways you can do it
0: yeah yeah and I think markets tend to reward you for being like a bit of a hedgehog relative to a fox, by which I mean, having some concentrated expertise in one place where you can have edge relative to like knowing a little bit about a lot of places. And that sort of naturally rewards like a diversity of approaches, because if you're doing something totally different, you just have to be a little bit better at this like idiosyncratic thing that you figured out than everyone else and you get to make money.
1: Yeah, which is great about
0: crypto too, because there's like a lot of like pockets of areas that like having like that, like knowledge that's
1: like just sort of specific, like matters a lot.
0: Great. Thanks so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this. This was great. Yeah. Thanks for having me.